0: All right, here we go. Welcome to our Facebook Live folks and let's turn now to Romans chapter 8. Let me give you just a brief recap of where we've been in Romans if that's possible. But I'll try to just do some broad strokes here so we understand what we're supposed to be looking for today. What do we want the Holy Spirit to do in our individual lives in our church? through our study of this letter to the Romans. And the first important thing that I'm reminded of every time I'm struggling with the application of this letter and how to properly interpret it and apply it to us is that it's a letter. Kim and I talk about this over and over. It's just so critical to remember. Wait a minute, this is not a systematic theology. This You can use it for systematic theology, But it primarily is not a discussion of big theological terms that we can argue about. And as I've said, come up with positions on and doctrines about and separate off from other Christians because we think we have the right understanding of some things that are very difficult to understand. That's not why Paul wrote this. It is a letter to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago, people with a lot of difference, people like us. From different backgrounds, there were Jews there, there were Gentiles there. That colors, affects how Paul preaches the essence of the gospel in the early chapters of it. He is concerned that these people from all these different backgrounds might misunderstand what the gospel is. And Paul makes it clear that it is not the group you belong to. It is not your pedigree. It is not the family you were born into. You the Jew could not think that they are favored because they were Jewish and that the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians. Paul spends a few of the early chapters sorting all of that out. And so we studied that. It is not your pedigree then, is it? We are justified by faith, by the grace of God through faith. And he uses Abraham as an example of one who believed him against all Common sense, against all odds, he just believed God's promise and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it's not our pedigree, it's not our performance. Once we understand that we have all sinned, all people are in the same situation, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the essence of the gospel is that no matter who you are, you can come to God and have your sins forgiven, not because you're good enough, but because you trust in Jesus and what he did when he died on the cross for you. And that just sounds too easy. And that doesn't explain then, well, what about this war that's still within me as I struggle with sin? And then we come to chapter 7. And Paul explains, I believe, his own experience of struggling with sin that I can certainly relate to. And then we're told that Jesus has set us free from that sin. It is not us any longer. It is sin within us that is doing that and causing this inner conflict. And so he deals with that wonderfully in chapter 7. And then, so it's not our pedigree, what group you belong to. It's not our performance, how good you think you are or how good you're trying to be. It is not that. And then as we get to, so so I just thought of this this morning. So the early part of Romans is our uh, struggle because of sin in up through chapter 7. Our struggle with sin. Chapter 8 then talks about our suffering because of sin. Why is it that Christians still suffer? We'll talk about that today a little more. So our, our suffering because of sin and then our groaning to be redeemed from sin. So it all has to do with Jesus setting us free. And so Satan, of course, wants to attack us. He wants us to think it's our pedigree. He wants to think it's our performance. We're, we're, you're good enough. Or you're not good enough, so there's no hope for you. Satan is going to attack us from all of these angles because, listen, Satan wants to weaken your faith. He wants to discourage you. He wants to rob you of joy and peace, which are essential to our fruitfulness, for the Lord, to bear fruit for the Lord. And so I think of the hymn, just as I am, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that you bidst me come to thee. Uh, o Lamb of God, I come. That's the gospel. The heart of a child, just coming to Jesus, putting your faith and your trust in him, period. And he will forgive your sins and you will be set free. So then we got into chapter 8. And chapter 8 is just a, a chapter of encouragement. It begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. doesn't matter that you still struggle with sin. We all do. It doesn't matter that you're suffering because of sin. And so there's no condemnation for us anymore. And then he talks about us receiving the Spirit with Uh, in whom we cry out, Abba, Father, just as Jesus did. We're we're brothers of Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. And he's encouraging these Christians. And as we come then a little further down, uh, last couple of weeks we studied God's predetermined plan for each one of us, that he predestined you to become conformed to the image of, of his son. That's going to happen. That's what is happening in the midst of all your suffering. And those he predestined, he also called in time. Those he called, he also justified. He, as, just as if we'd never sinned. Our sins are forgiven. And those he justified, it's as good as done. He also glorified. It is so certain that it's going to happen that he can speak about it in the past tense. The resurrection is going to happen. You're going to be raised from the dead, get a new glorified body like Jesus. It's as good as done. That encourages the Christian. And, uh, F.F. Bruce wrote, Could there be any stronger encouragement to faith than the contemplation of God's saving purpose for His people moving forward to its predestined consummation? Could there be anything more encouraging than that? No. And now he continues in one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible that you've all heard many, many, many times. So let's dig into it and put it together. And may the Holy Spirit encourage your heart as you put your faith in Jesus today and in the midst of whatever it is that you have gone through, whatever you are going through, whatever you will go through, may this knowledge and truth be an encouragement to you. Now, Paul begins this section with, a series of seven rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question is a question that kind of has an obvious answer. He begins with the first one in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Well, what we should say to these things is, Hallelujah, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you, it doesn't depend on me. Thank you for showing me what's going on when I'm struggling with sin. Thank you for explaining why the suffering is happening and how it's purposeful and what you're trying to do in my life through it. Thank you, Lord. What then shall we say to these things? And I'll just tell you, my outline is flowing right out of Psalm 18 because in, my, in the Bible I was reading Psalm 18, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And in Psalm 18 we read this. I love you, Lord. This is David. King David, just a person like you and me, a human being, fully human beings, struggling with sin, suffering from the consequences of sin, praying to be redeemed from sin. David, King Saul, the king of Israel, whom David respects because he's a a humble man of God, he respects Saul. Saul wants to kill him. His father in law wants to kill him. The king of Israel wants to kill him. The one who had been anointed by God is after his life. And so are the Philistines and all of the, because David is Saul's commanding officer and he's fighting wars all the time. People want to kill him left and right. And this is what David wrote. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord, he's right in the midst of this stuff. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So as I was meditating on Psalm 18, and I'm studying Romans 8, I'm seeing how they go together. That's where David went. And so I took some of the language out of Psalm 18 to come up with these uh, characteristics of God or truths about God that we're going to find in answer to some of these rhetorical questions. But the first question is simply asking about what, what should our right response be to what we've already learned in Romans chapter 8? It should be extremely encouraging. We should be stronger. We should be more at peace. We should be more confident. We should be less fearful, less anxious. That's the right response. So what then shall we say to these things? And now he goes into his next rhetorical question, 31b. If God is for us, who is against us? Now you might say, well, uh, there's a lot against me. I've got health issues. I'm not getting any younger. Uh, Satan is certainly against me, isn't he? Aren't all of people who are doing satan's bidding aren't they against me isn't that what's going on in our culture i mean it seems to me a lot is against me ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 through 13 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood it's against the principalities and the powers and those uh, spiritual forces of evil that are all around us that we can't see that's true Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said, be sober, Christian, be sober. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion just seeking someone to devour, and he's after you. So how can Paul ask this question? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Satan? Yeah, but not ultimately. Not finally. That's the answer to the question. If God is for us, then who can possibly be against us? Because God is our protector. Right? God will not allow His saints to suffer harm. Yeah, physically, maybe, temporarily, yeah. But not ultimately. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son... So he's talking about God being for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, there's an allusion, certainly, to Genesis chapter 22. Let me just read to you from Genesis 22, verses 12 through 16. He's, if you just read about this, if you're reading your Old Testament, please read your Bible every day. Read about Abraham, read about Isaac and Jacob, read about Paul refers to Abraham throughout the book of Romans. And let me just read to you Genesis twenty two twelve. The angel of the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He's just about ready to sacrifice his son, Isaac on the altar. He has the knife above his son. God told him to do that, to test him. And then the angel said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is, a, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And it, Jesus. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is to this day the Lord provides. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Then he goes on to say how greatly he's going to bless Abraham but now back to romans 8:32 he who did not spare his own son god did not hold back god did give over his own son but delivered him up for us all how will he not also along with him with giving us jesus how how will he not also along with jesus freely give us all things this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. I preached this uh, years ago, I think on Easter even once. But this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Okay? So remember the picture that I put up above of the guy, the power lifter who's under the barbell with, with plates, you know, several plates on both sides. So he's lifting this 500 and some pounds of weight, and you've got to remain under it, under the pressure of it, for it to count and for it to have its, its effect. If he can lift that, do you think he can lift a five-pound dumbbell? Obviously. That's what's happening here. Paul saying, if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also, along with Jesus, then graciously give you all things? So, if you're here today, or you've gone through something, or you're going through something, and there's moments where you wonder... If God's going to be faithful or not. I mean, think about the people in your life. How much do you trust them? How dependable are they, really? What would it take for them to betray you? Probably not as much as you think. And it would partially depend on you. If you blow it toward them, if you uh, betray their trust, if you uh, you could do all kinds of things that suddenly would cause their love to... Cool toward you, and, and they might turn away from you. You know, what, what's the percentage chance of that happen if you were really blowing it? But when it comes to God, what's the percentage? What's the percentage of, of His faithfulness to you? What's the percent, is it 100%? Yes. Is it out of a, out of, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does God love you? A 10. He will, because I have blown it. And he still loves me. I have sinned, and he still forgives me. So I know for sure that my father will never, ever, he who did not, so this is what you've got to remember when Satan is attacking you and telling you, maybe God doesn't love you as much as you think. You're really, chapter 7, looking in the mirror and seeing a bum. And you're feeling really bad about yourself. Satan will be all over you, causing you to question God's love for you. And that's where Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son." you've got to remember that, but gave him up for us all. How will he then not also along with him do the easy thing? He will give you everything that you need. He will strengthen you. He'll give you the grace that you need right now and every moment forever. God is our provider. God sent his son Jesus. And if you trust in that and you remember that and look back on the track record, you will know. Look up above it, Matthew 6:33. This is right after Jesus talked about anxiety. He said, don't be anxious. Why are you so anxious? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then all these things, everything that you ever want and worry about will be provided to you. 2 Peter 1, three. seeing that God's divine power has granted to us Christians everything, everything pertaining to life, to godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And of course, you know Philippians 4.13. Register this one because I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. I can do all things through God. Him or in him, literally, who strengthens me. Everything. I can do this. I can survive this. I can remain under this pressure. Because I'm in him. And then finally, Philippians four nineteen. The Apostle Paul is in prison and he's writing to the Philippians who have been very generous to him. They love him, given him offerings and sent him gifts. And then he returns it by saying, and my God will also, because he's supplying Paul's needs in prison. My God will also supply all of your needs. Not out of, but according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, which are infinite and limitless. So that's the promise for the Christian. May we remember that when we're in the midst of our next trial or the one you're in. Okay. Okay. F.F. F. Bruce wrote, Since God is their strong salvation, what force can prevail against them? Since his love was supremely manifested in the sacrifice of his own son on their behalf, what good thing will he withhold from them? It's another rhetorical question. Okay.
1: Look at
0: verse 33. Now the picture shifts. Did anybody else like uh, to watch a show or a movie Perry Mason where there's a court scene? Anybody really enjoy those? I do. I just love uh, when that's going on, S- listening to the argumentation, seeing how the system's going to work—is there going to be justice or not? Um, and, and Paul shifts here in verse 33 to a, a scene in court. I have a Kim and I have a nephew in law that I've referred to maybe a time or two before, but he's uh, kind of like a defense attorney for the county up in Minnesota. And he loves his job. I couldn't do his job. But he loves his job. He says, you know, they deserve even if they're guilty, they deserve a fair trial. And so, you know, it keeps everybody on their toes so that they try to do their jobs and everything. And I get all that, and I respect him for his decision. But unfortunately, our system of justice is able to be and often is abused. People lie. People hide testimony and evidence. And judges are imperfect. So judges have to operate on the information that they receive, and everybody's lying. Not everybody, but it's not uncommon. But, as we come to verse 33 now, God in his system of justice, God who is sovereign over everything, and God who is omniscient knows everything. He knows all the details. You're not going to fool him. His justice cannot be abused. God's justice cannot be cleverly manipulated. And here's the thing. His decision has been reached. Look at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Rhetorical question. Who will do it? Well, Satan will try. But here's the thing. Justification. God's decision was already reached. The verdict was already announced. You already, if you've trusted in Christ, you've already stood before the bench of God. You knew you were guilty. You, you knew you deserved the death penalty. You were on death row. But the judge made an announcement, and that was not guilty. Satan's accusations, yeah, they're partially or sometimes wholly true. They're believable. But listen, they're inadmissible. They're in all of Satan's accusations against you are now inadmissible in court. I love it when somebody gets up and blah, blah, and then the judge just says, overruled. That's what God says. When Satan says, yeah, but, yeah, but look at he blew it again. Overruled. It's thrown out of court. Our crimes have passed the statute of limitations. We already went through it. There is no double jeopardy. You will never be tried again for your past sins. So don't let Satan try to get into your head and tell you otherwise. So who can, So the answer to the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is our refuge. God is the one we go to and say, no, no, no. You cannot accuse me of that anymore. I am not condemned for that any more Romans 8:1 there is no condemnation so who is the one who condemns who will bring a charge against God's elect no one successfully look at verse 34 or the uh, second part of verse 33 33b God is the one who justifies You don't justify yourself. Satan doesn't justify you. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one then who condemns? Yeah, we were on death row, but we're not anymore. Christ Jesus is he who died, rather, who was raised. This is the important historical stuff that I was encouraging the children to think about and for you to think about. We need to just look back at history. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a historical event that happened that we look back to. That's what he's doing here in verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, even more, who was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, the consequences of sin who is at the right hand of God now, who also intercedes for us. Number five, God is our deliverer. He who did not... For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. I will deliver you from that. And he sent Jesus. 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? Okay, now I call this, God is my rock. And here's why. Because in those moments of temptation, we're going to question God's love for us. So Paul's going further. I can look back and say, well, Jesus died for me, was raised from the dead. I know that proves it. That's, That's a historical fact. I can trust in that. That becomes my rock then. 35, who shall separate us from that? From that love. A rock is solid. A rock doesn't move. A rock doesn't change. And with love like what we just saw demonstrated in history by Jesus for us to remember that becomes an immovable thing that is just not going to go anywhere. And we can't let it. Now again, there's, there are many threats to our security, our sense of security in Christ. There's no threats to our security, but our experience of that peace and that resting is often threatened so look at verse 35b. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now Paul goes through a list. I'll look at the picture up above of the Apostle Paul. He, he lived it. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter... Where do I have that written here? Or 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23. When Paul... Believed in Jesus. When Ananias came to Paul and said to him, Paul, uh, Jesus is calling you. Jesus said to Ananias, I'm going to have you tell him how much I'm going to suffer, how much he's going to suffer for my sake. So Paul knew from the beginning that this was not going to be an easy ministry. So listen to what the apostle Paul experienced in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Are they servants of Christ? I'm more so. Now, he goes through a list of things that he had experienced. Uh, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten, three time, or beaten times without number, I'm sorry. Beaten times without number. I've lost track of how many times I've been beaten as a Christian. That's a lot of times often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead. Three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the country, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then apart from these external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul is groaning. And he writes this. He said, what will separate us from the love of God? And he goes through a list of stuff that he knows firsthand. Shall tribulation, that word means pressure. It's the word that's used of being under all that weight, like we are. The next word, distress, is a great word. I picture standing on, the, on a subway just being crushed in. It's, it's narrow, narrowness. Uh, which means to be crowded or pressed or compressed or squeezed or crushed. Is there anybody in here today who feels that way? Do you feel like, is it maybe, like we said last week, maybe it's not the one big thing. Some of you have big things going on. Others of you just have a whole bunch of little things, and everywhere you turn, there's another responsibility, there's another demand, and just about the time you're completely at your wits end, the phone rings, and somebody else wants something else. And it's just like crushed in. Will that separate you from the love of God? Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? No. Why not? Because God is our fortress. Number seven, God is our fortress. In, in Philippians 4.11, Paul wrote this. This helps me understand the concept of how God is our fort. Paul wrote, not that I speak from want. He's in prison. He says, not like I lack anything. Not that I speak from want, because I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Can anybody remember what the word content means? It is literally content. The transliteration of that Greek word is self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. And to the Christian we say, well, we're not self-sufficient, we depend on God. No, what Paul means is this. He means that God is my fortress. That I'm in Christ. I can, that's why 413 says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. So Paul sees himself, as we have talked, in Christ. So I'm in my fort. I'm protected. There's all kinds of enemies on the outside, there's all kinds of boneheads on the inside. But yet here I am. I've got a, a well that, is, that goes into a limitless supply of water. I've got all the sunshine that I need. I have everything I need in this fort to survive forever. I can do all things in Him. And I'm, I'm self-satisfied. I'm, self, I'm self-sufficient. Because I'm in Christ. So God is our fortress. Let that sink in for a second. So in the stuff that you're going through now, can you just for a moment say a quick little prayer now and just say, Lord... If you're in Christ, I'm okay. I'm good. Nothing, nothing, none of this stuff can separate me from your love. Nothing, none of this can separate me from your protection. Nothing can separate me from your ultimate promise that you're going to glorify me. That's where I'm headed. And all this pressure is part of the process. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now he ends his, uh, Rhetorical questions with a series of supporting suppositions. He just states a few things here in the last couple of verses. In verse 36, we have what I've called uh, number one under here. I've called this the ironic reality. Wouldn't you think, now come on, this would work better for me. What do you think? Wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it have been better if God planned it, that once we became a Christian, we never sinned anymore, we never struggled anymore, we never groaned anymore, we were the rich ones, we were the good-looking ones, we were—we have the best clothes, we're the uh, most happiest people, everything going great, so that people could just look at us and say, look how different they are. Everything is way better for them than it is for us. Wouldn't that have been better? But here's the ironic reality. Look at verse 36 as Paul quotes Psalm 44:22. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. I mean, Christians are supposed to suffer. We read that earlier in the chapter. If you share the sufferings of Christ, look up above, John 16:33. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. You will struggle with sin. You will suffer because of sin. You will groan for redemption for the rest of your earthly life. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's the ironic reality. And the ironic, uh, ironic reality then uh, goes into verse thirty seven and we see this. Number two God is our Saviour. For your sake we were being put to death all good long. We were considered ex to be slaughtered. But in all these things we hyper conquer. Super conquer is what the word says, hyper. In all of these things that he has just mentioned, all of those trials, all of those hardships, all of the suffering, all of the groaning, all of that, everything that we will ever go through in the present tense, which means always we're going to be doing this, we are always over-conquering those things. Through him who loved us. And, and he's certainly referring to the Jesus' death on the cross, who loved us and demonstrated it on the cross. So God is our Savior. All the suffering, listen, all the hardships, the, tribu- the stuff Jesus predicted, all of that, all the trials, all the tribulation, all the pressure does not stop, does not stifle, does not inhibit the Christian. None of that can inhibit us unless we let it. Because the way that God is taking all of those ingredients of our lives in the mixing bowl, he's working all things together for good, God has taken all the ingredients of your life, every single last thing that has happened in your life. He was mixing together in the mixing bowl, working it all together for good, and he's shaping it in his hands to look like Jesus. So all of those trials that we're going to face are meant to train us, to strengthen us, equip us, increase our effectiveness to influence others. Not by them looking and saying, oh, look at how good looking they are, look at how wealthy they are. No, when they look and they see even though they are suffering, maybe they're suffering because they're Christians,
1: but if they look at us,
0: And the fruit of the spirit. There's no, there's no other explanation other than that person has God. I got it. That's the way God designed it. And then finally, verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine. For I am convinced, Paul says. Now that that word is in the perfect tense, which means he's already come to this conclusion. Nothing's going to change. This. I am convinced that neither depth nor life nor angels nor uh, principalities nor things or things to come. What's he doing? Nor powers, all that demonic stuff. And now he uses some astrological words, which is not a big deal, but but it's kind of important. Nor height, nor depth. Because astrologers would believe that stars you know, kind of you know, move around the sky, they go up and down, and they kind of control our destiny. That, that sounds goofy, but we can, I think we can become that way a little bit. When we're really under in our lives, we can think, maybe there is a force out there that, that's stronger than God. You might think, oh, you're crazy. I don't think so. I think we have a temptation to think, you know, God is great and everything, but, you know, there's something else a little bit bigger that's really going to determine where this thing's going. And he's saying, no, no, no. Uh, The path of the stars, the ups and downs, they do not control your destiny. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and I've called that God is our shepherd, because David said, the Lord. Is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall lack nothing. Listen to this quote from John Bundy in Pilgrim's Progress. A little old English, it's really good. So here's John Bundy. He says, But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, he probably had been struggling with sin of some sort. But to ask fearing less, yet all with no sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness." So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He wants my righteousness. And he used them once the same way. He lacks my righteousness. God will never say that of me. He's deficient of my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw moreover that it was not, listen to this, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself. The same yesterday and today and forever. So, do you, you see what that was about? He was struggling with
1: good. He for suffering. And he's questioning, doubting.
0: And then he remembers, oh, it isn't my bending. And it isn't my performance, is it? It's what Jesus did for me on the cross. My righteousness is right there at the right hand of God. He remembered that. And that brought him peace. You and I are living in a world that you know is just, just, uh, so much tribulation, so much. Everything can. And
1: um, you're going through some of it, some of the super intense, that are really acute
0: over. It was like that. I think out in 16, when that Fort fortunately Calvin there. He was deployed and landed on the beach, on the beach, on June 6, 1944, in a tank, and he made it to the land, and you know what that looks like. All the fighting and the blood, death under the death, the onion and the you know, I mean, do you think many of the soldiers that they fell underwent in the war? Did, did, did you they realize that this was the turning point, was a turning point in the war? And he was, you know, something um, dropped in his tank and he had a trap and his body, was loaded with trap, though. I mean, he survived it, but still. But then,
1: uh, almost in January, April 8th of 1945, with a um,
0: Evidence that we are God's people. And then we will be able to bear fruit. And we will be able to be
1: more effective as we tell other people about the hope that
0: we have in Jesus
1: and that Jesus has done. So I'd ask you, please, to bow your heads and just let me read this to you one more time.
0: I know you're disappointed. I know that there are all of those things going on in your life that are making you groan. But just listen to this, please. And then meditate on it for a few more.
1: What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us,
0: Do not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died,
1: yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us? tribulation of the distress, the persecution, famine, nakedness.